I want you to try and do something utterly impossible. I want you to try to imagine that you grew up in a primitive village in the equatorial forest, that you'd never traveled further than five miles upstream, that you had never heard a radio, you'd never read a book, you had never seen television, you didn't have an iPod, you didn't have the internet. All you knew was the culture of a tribe of 150 people. And that was it. Can you begin to conceive of your concept of the world? This is totally foreign to us, isn't it? I want you to imagine that into that little tribe came a couple from the outside world who were utterly and totally different in appearance, in demeanor, in every conceivable way. They settled into the village and eventually the villagers got used to them and as many, many years went by, they became conversant with the language. They began to produce something called writing. They actually then showed up with a book. And so great was the impact of this foreign couple who came into the village that they became absolutely indispensable to the people. They helped them with their gardening and their little farms. They helped them with medical concerns. Uh, They introduced them to concepts of hygiene and this sort of thing. There's absolutely no question about it that many, many things became very, very much improved for these, these people. And then this couple who'd come in from the outside world did a remarkable thing. They started to gather the people early in the morning before they went out to work in their gardens or went hunting. And they started to tell a story. And it was a story that went on day after day and week after week and month after month. It was called what we call a meta-narrative. It was a fascinating story because it, it, it talked about the world... Not, not the world in which you people had grown up in this little village of 150 people and never traveled more than five miles upstream. It was of, of, of a huge world and of a huge God and of a huge plan that he had. And they, they began to tell this story and the minds of the villagers were expanded almost to bursting point. And they began to convey a a sense that these little people living in these circumscribed circumstances actually had a role to play in this grand cosmic plan. Totally mind-blowing. You get the picture, don't you? And then the story took a funny twist after a while because suddenly something was introduced into this idyllic scene, this idealistic scene, where the wheel came off and everything started to go wrong. And the people in the village resonate with that because a lot of things go wrong, even though there's only 150 people in the tribe. And there are other tribes nearby, but there's just terrible, bloody tension with them all the time. They understand things going wrong. They understand hatred. They understand violence. They understand pain. They understand all these things. But now they're getting an explanation as to why these things happen. But then the story one morning tells them that this God who created the whole thing has promised that he will take steps to rectify what has gone wrong. 
And then the story goes on mysteriously to say that the way he's going to rectify it is by calling a certain man called Abraham and that his descendants will become the channel through whom the power of God, this God who created all things, will actually be released and start to put things right. And then as the story unfolds day after day, week after week, as the story untold, they realize that God will, through this family of Abraham, send a son. And he will be the deliverer. He will be the transformer. Unfortunately, the people of Abraham don't respond as they ought to this. And they go all kind of detours and they get all messed up. But God keeps sending people called prophets and he tells them how to get back and get back. And the promise comes all the time. I will send my son. I will send my son. I will send my son. And one day the people come early in the morning for the next exciting installment of this story. And they are told the son has come. And they get the shock of their lives, these little people in the village, for the Son of God who has come to be the deliverer and put wrong things right is a baby. They are incredulous. But the story goes on. And this baby grows up to be a great man, a fine man. And he, but he has all kinds of enemies as well as many, many people who are blessed by him. And as time goes on, the enemies plot against him. And one day the villagers come and they hear the most awful story that this man has been betrayed by one of his followers and he's been arrested and he's been given a false trial and all kinds of lying witnesses and they've sentenced him to death. And they think to themselves, well, he'll escape. He'll escape. He is God's son. But the next morning they come for the story and they find he doesn't escape. That in actual fact, the sentence of death is carried out. And he is subjected to the most cruel, inhumane death imaginable. And he dies. And instead of telling the people, come back tomorrow morning for the rest of the story, the missionaries say, don't come tomorrow. He's dead. Can you imagine this story has been going on for weeks and months and day after day the tension has been building up, the anticipation, the excitement. I'm not making this up folks. This is what we call chronological teaching. It has been developed by New Tribes Mission and it is used now in many, many places to begin to unfold the great story. But my point right here is this, to give you the idea of what it must have been like in those villages when this wonderful story that had been building up to a glorious climax is suddenly ended. And it's total disaster. In some of the villages, the people go away in tears. There is mourning in the little village. And instead of having the early morning gathering to hear more of the story, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to say. Everything is hopeless. That is precisely where we are in the story of Luke's gospel. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 24, the first few verses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body 
of the Lord Jesus. And they were wondering about this. Their grief, their disappointment, their utter dismay is now married to overwhelming confusion. Who are these women? Well, we're told the names of two or three of them. We're told that one was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, we are told in another part of Luke in the eighth chapter, was well known because she had been healed of demonic possession. It says that she was possessed by seven demons. Now, somebody here may say, oh, come on, don't give me that. She probably had schizophrenia or epilepsy or a mix of both or something. These ancient people, they didn't understand medical science and no smart, civilized people in the 21st century believe in demons. Well, put that on the back burner for now. Let's just look at what the scripture says. And the scripture says that whatever the explanation was, her life was being ruined and wrecked by dynamics for which she had no answer. But Jesus had come into her life in some way, had counteracted the dynamics that were totally destructive in her life and had delivered her from them. He had shown that he had power greater than the powers that were destroying her and she had been delivered and she had been transformed. And it was a gracious ministry on the part of Jesus because he had taken the initiative, he had seen her plight, he had reached out in compassion and he had done the deed. Grace is the key word there. Now, grace begets gratitude. And Mary of Magdala, she became intensely grateful to Jesus because he had changed her life. I can imagine she is looking for ways to express her gratitude. And somewhere along the line, she says, in effect, you know, Jesus served me. How can I serve him? How can I express my gratitude? And so she quite naturally begins to do little things that are helpful to Jesus. And eventually she joins his growing retinue. He has 12 men who work with him all the time. And then there are other people that they seem to collect uh, going along the way. Blind people whose eyes are open. Lame people who are able to walk again. They don't go home. They join the retinue. And some of them are women. And now the women, like Mary Magdalene, join the group as well. The retinue explodes in numbers. And she becomes absolutely indispensable in caring for Jesus and the disciples and the women who are being blessed. You notice what happens here. Grace is the initiative that Jesus takes. Gratitude is the response. And the expression of gratitude is service. And that's how it was supposed to work in the Christian economy. Grace of God is the initiative. Gratitude is the response. Loving service is the expression. And that is what happens as far as Mary Magdalene is concerned. It's too bad that Mary Magdalene character has been besmirched because the Pope many, many, many moons ago decided that she was an immoral woman and a prostitute. And that has stuck until relatively recently the Catholic Church has redressed that error. Now, next lady in the list is Joanna. She is totally different from Mary of Magdala. 
Joanna is married to a man who actually is the manager of the palace where Herod lives. He is part of the elite. He is living high on the hog. He is in a position of tremendous responsibility and authority and Joanna is his wife, but she has different needs from Mary Magdalene. But Jesus in some ways come into contact with her and the same thing has happened. Grace begets gratitude. Gratitude longs for expression. Expression shows itself in loving, sacrificial service. And Joanna, incredibly, is seen supporting this group financially and giving of her time in ministry as well. These are the women. So devoted were they to Jesus out of gratitude for grace received that they couldn't bear to see him taken away and tied and falsely accused. And so it's really no surprise that we find them incredibly at the foot of the cross. The men, afraid they're not there, with the exception of young John, Mary of Magdala, Joanna, they're there. They actually converse with Jesus while he's writhing in agony on the cross. He actually talks to them and they hear him in the end say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit and he dismisses his spirit and he bows his head. They didn't take his life from him. He dismissed his spirit. He had said, no one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. They saw him do it. They saw that he was dead. Everything that that motivated them, everything that had been at the very core of their being, at the very core of their lives, was suddenly taken away. The rug was pulled from under their feet and they're devastated. Not devastated enough to run away, devastated enough to see what's going to happen to his body because the normal thing would be for the soldiers who crucified him simply to cut down the body and dig a hole there and just let the body either fall into the hole or lie there and rot and be eaten by scavenging dogs. They say that can't be allowed to happen. They're so relieved when two men, Joseph of Arimathea and his friend, wealthy men, they've talked to Pilate that they have an inn with the authorities. They're secret believers. They take the body and they bury it in the tomb and Mary and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women, they follow to see where the body is buried. But they're distraught because it is never prepared for burial. This man who's done nothing but blessing, they've allowed him to be killed like a criminal. They're allowing him to die like a dog. The least they can do is prepare him for burial. But they don't know how they're going to do it, but they go home. And then it's Sabbath. Sabbath starts on Friday at sunset, goes till Sunday at sunset. They are observant, so they will not do any work at all on the Sabbath. They simply spend the time in utter rank despair. But as soon as they can, as soon as Sabbath is over, long before it is light, they are there busy preparing spices and they make their way to the tomb. As they make their way to the tomb, what are they discussing? They're discussing how we're going to get in the tomb. 
We can't move that stone. We're not strong enough. They feel so helpless. They feel so vulnerable. They feel that they don't really count at all in that culture. They certainly are put on the bottom of the totem pole. And incredibly, they go anyway. When they get to the tomb, they're in for a surprise. I think these women show up considerably better than the men in Luke 24. Luke 24 shows the women exhibiting something I call feminine courage, while the men are not exhibiting any courage at all. The reason, of course, is that there's a different kind of courage that is exhibited by men and exhibited by women. What is masculine courage? Well, masculine courage actually dominates our thinking of courage in our culture. Masculine courage was exhibited by Simon Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when an armed group come to arrest Jesus and Simon Peter, who is a red-blooded he-man, the kind of guy that men love, he sees what is about to happen and he says, over my dead body. He sees danger and he instinctively reacts in a physical way. And he whips out a sword and he's ready to take on the whole armed group single-handedly. Masculine courage. Red, bloodied, chest stuck out, set of the jaw, fist clenched over my dead body. Don't you love it? Men... Come on, don't you love it? You watch the package, don't you? You love that kind of courage. We love that kind of courage. And the women scratch their heads. They don't understand it. What about the feminine courage? Well, I came across something in an 1880 edition of the New York Times. Now, I know you're surprised to hear that I was taking the New York Times in 1880. (laughs) This is true. I found this on the web. You didn't know they had the web in 1880, did you? this, This is the quote by an anonymous author in the New York Times in 1880. The highest quality of courage is fortitude, of which a woman has twentyfold as much as a man. She bears pain, the sharpest and most unremitting, as he never does or can. She bears mental anguish, spiritual woe, without a murmur or a sigh. And so habitually that he, unconscious of her self-restraint, never suspects its existence. The fortitude, patience, self-denial, self-suppression, the long unrewarded sacrifice woman is forever practicing. These things are seldom observed by a man. Isn't that interesting? You know, it almost seems to me that whoever this writer was in 1880 wrote this piece after they'd read the story of the women on the way to the tomb. 
What are the characteristics that we see in these women? Well, we know that they have to be frightened, but they know also what is the right thing to do. And governed not by physical fear and reacting physically to physical fear, they simply operate on the spiritual principle of what is right. They know that they are relatively weak. They can't move this stone. They know that they have absolutely no answers. They know that they don't have access to the authorities. They're women in that particular culture. But they go anyway. They have a sense of rightness. They have a sense of fortitude. They are patient. They are unrelenting in their commitment. They are working quietly. There's no bravado. There's no braggadocio. They are simply persisting and all in the context of unrelieved, unremitting pain. Courage. Courage. Now, I'm not going to make application and say, men, we've got to be more like the women. Any more than I want the women to be more like the men. But what I'm going to say is this. We don't want to feminize the church, but we don't want to masculinize the women either. But what we do need to do is this. We need to recognize that there is much for men to learn from women as the men are always expecting to teach the women. And that what we can learn from women is the kind of courage that is relatively foreign to our thinking. Much more we could say. Some of the guys are saying, you've said quite enough. What's next? The women say, no, go on. (laughs) Tell us more. Well, let me me look at the, the next stage here. The angels. Well, I, I, I didn't read this passage to you, did I? Verse 4, whilst they were wondering about the rolled away stone, the empty tomb and the missing body, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. All right, what happens here? Well, these men in gleaming clothes, the writers said they were just angels. Somebody said, oh, come on, you've had demons popping around all over the place in Magdalene. Now you've got angels popping up. And next you're going to tell us that Jesus actually physically rose again from the dead. Okay, just hold it. We'll get there in a minute. Well, a few minutes. This story simply says that there were angelic messengers who gently rebuked them and said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? These poor women, if they were able to answer these men, these angels in their terror, they'd have said, we're not looking for the living. We're not looking for the living. We're looking for the dead. 
We've got the spices. We want to embalm his body. There are people who are critical of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection who say that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead and he didn't appear to his disciples. They were hallucinating. What we know about hallucinations, however, is this, that hallucinations are the result of people having such expectations, such a desire for something to happen that it becomes almost a self-fulfilling longing within them. They weren't longing. They weren't expecting. They weren't anticipating resurrection at all. They weren't looking for the living among the dead. They were looking for a very, very dead Jesus whose body was decomposing, which they wanted to prepare for the burial that it had never been prepared for. But then they make the announcement. He is not here. That's obvious. But how do you account for him not being there? There are many ways you could account for him being there. How do the women initially account not being there? Well, when Mary sees who she thinks is the gardener, she says to the gardener, they've taken away my Lord. And if you know where they've taken him to, please tell me. What does she think has happened? How does she explain the rolled away stone, the empty tomb, the missing body? It's simple. Somebody took the body. That's how she explains it. But the angels introduce an entirely different factor here. And this has to be factored into our reckoning. You can explain the stone. You can explain the empty tomb. You can explain the missing body. What do you do with this message? He is not here. He is risen just as he said he would. What else did he say? While you were in Galilee, the angels go on. He told you this. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. You will remember that that when Jesus was in Galilee talking to these men and women, he had given them a sense of mustness, of intentionality about his mission. Repeatedly, he'd used the word must. I must do this, I must do that, including The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. It is intentional. It is something that Peter said on the day of Pentecost was part of the set plan and foreknowledge of God. What? That he should be delivered, handed over into sinful men's hands according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God. Why? Because God is allowing his sinless, spotless son to be taken by sinful men and made an offering for sin. It's intentional. It must happen. But that is not the end of the story. For he must be crucified and on the third day he must rise again from the dead. Why? Because that is a demonstration of the power of God triumphing in the arena of the worst of man. That's our hope. That's our hope. That the power of God can triumph in the arena of the worst of man. The disciples explained to the women, it must happen. It has happened. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. 
if you were to accept, if you were to accept this idea, okay, Jesus really did rise again from the dead, what do you imagine in your mind? Well, you say, I imagine, I don't like to talk about it, but I imagine his body being buried immediately after death, as they do in the Middle East for obvious reasons, unembalmed, unprepared for burial, just dropped in, in a tomb there, and immediately the process of decomposition sets in. Is there over three days? And then somehow or other the process of decomposition is arrested and then it's reversed and then I guess this body is revivified and then somehow or other this revivified body wriggles out of these grave clothes I haven't really thought about it but I guess the grave clothes are there so it must have done and then somehow or other managed to push the stone away and then get out without the guards noticing and uh, disappear I guess that's what happened no. No. You see, what happened was this. It's explained for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to read that. No, not while I'm talking. <laughs> I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 differentiates between an earthly body and a heavenly body. Clearly differentiates between the two. And what, what is happening here is not an earthly body that is decomposing has the process arrested and reversed and is then revivified and just begins to behave like an earthly body. No. What has happened is a dramatic work of divine transformation where the earthly body is changed into a heavenly body. That which is related to here suddenly becomes that which belongs there. That which we understand in the here and now is suddenly that which is appropriate and necessary in the there and then. This is not time. This is eternity on display. He doesn't need to wriggle to get out of the grave clothes. This is a heavenly body. He doesn't need someone to move the stone. The stone wasn't moved to let him out. The stone was moved to let the disciples in. He doesn't need anybody to help him handle the guards. This is a heavenly body. And the interesting thing about it is this. Just as he said it would happen, it has. Do you believe that? That's important. (laughs) Because the women go to the men. The men have barricaded themselves in a room. Sorry, guys, but this is what he says. The men have barricaded themselves into the room. The women come to the door, start knocking on the door. Let us in, let us in, let us in. The men said, what? What do you want? What do you want? Let us in, let, we got wonderful news. And the men said, no way are we letting you in here. We don't know what's going on here. Another problem, of course, is they're women and they're all talking at once. <laughs> Men can't handle that. They say, okay, take a number, one after the other. We need to process this. And eventually they get what the women are trying to say. We went to the tomb. The stone was rolled away. The body was gone. The tomb was emptied. There were a couple of angels there. They said he's risen, just as he said he was going to do. Because, and we remember now, he predicted he would in Galilee. And you heard it as well. 
And the man, the man said, are you ready? Nonsense. Nonsense. Uh, let me ask you something. Have you met anybody who says nonsense about the resurrection? You've, you've met anybody who says, oh, come on, don't give me that. Don't give me this angel stuff. Don't give me this demon stuff. Don't give me this resurrection stuff. I am a 21st century man. The, the problem for, for these disciples, actually they were the apostles. Actually these men who are rank skeptics over the resurrection, they are the apostles, the 11 survivors of the original 12, the foundation of the church. No wonder we say God help the church. That's how we started out. If the church is anything, it is attributable to the grace of God. These men have a problem. You know what their problem is? Their problem is their presuppositions. And that's my problem, that's your problem very often. A presupposition, what's that? A presupposition is an assumption made in advance. Your presuppositions will inevitably determine your conclusions. You start out at a certain place, you're going to finish up in a predictable place. Presuppositions lead to conclusions. Everybody operates on presuppositions. That's why you don't spend a lot of time arguing about conclusions, you explore presuppositions. Here is a presupposition. Presupposition number one. The universe is a closed universe. Not subject to external forces. In which things that happen are the effects of discernible causes. Everything operates on the basis of cause and effect. It's a closed universe. There is no way in which external forces can intrude. That's a presupposition, which will lead to a naturalistic view of the world. Here's another presupposition. This universe is not closed. It was created by a God who reserves the right to intervene. That there are spiritual dynamics of which we are not necessarily aware that these spiritual dynamics can be malevolent or they can be benevolent, but overall God is sovereign and he intervenes in the affairs of men. That's another presupposition. You will operate on one or the other. You'll operate on one or the other. And those presuppositions will determine your conclusions. Here's the presupposition of the apostles at this particular point. Jesus said he was the Christ. We bought it. We believed it. We even went around telling people he was. But we've been checking on our Bibles. And one thing we know about Messiah, the Christ, is this. That he will be the son of man. The Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is shown to be ultimately and finally a world ruler. 
We've also checked on the Psalm 2 and other Messianic Psalms, and we have seen the same thing, except the emphasis there is that Messiah will be the restorer of the Davidic kingdom. We believed it. We thought Jesus would do both. And now he's dead. He couldn't be Messiah. He's a fake. He's a phony. Don't tell us he's risen from the dead. You see how their presuppositions lead inevitably to their conclusion. There are people who simply say, as far as this world of ours is concerned, there's no such thing as angels. There's no such thing as demons. There's no such thing as resurrection because God didn't raise people from the dead. Let me address my dear skeptical friends. Let me ask you a question that's not original. Paul asked it of King Agrippa. Why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? Why? Why is that incredible? (laughs) Well, I'll add a little bit here to help you try to answer that if you're skeptical of the resurrection. Do you believe it's incredible that God would raise the dead because God couldn't do it? Or do you believe that he doesn't raise the dead because he wouldn't do it? Or because he shouldn't do it? He couldn't? He wouldn't? Or he shouldn't? Why is it incredible that God would raise the dead? That's for my skeptical friends to think. I want you to explore your presuppositions. If your presupposition is this is what God is or this is what God isn't, then you need to explore that because where did you get your ideas of God? Are they just from your head? You mean God fits into your head with all due respect? That ain't much of a God. There's one bright spot, however, in this story. Peter. Peter. Peter has learned at long last that it's a good idea to keep your mouth shut. He has shut off his mouth once too often. And he's been caught out and the cock crew and he'd already denied Jesus three times that night. You remember? And Jesus looked at him, didn't say a word, didn't need to, and Peter is devastated. So he's not about to open his big mouth now. And whilst the men, the other apostles, are saying to the women, oh, be quiet, give me a break. Don't come all this nonsense about him being risen. Peter is strangely quiet. He's taking it all in. And he's saying to himself, something's happened to these women. They've seen something. They've heard something. And if it's true that that tomb is empty and it's true that the body is missing and it is true that he said he would rise again from the dead, I need to explore this. And Peter does a smart thing. 
keeps his mouth shut and he goes quietly to the tomb and he finds the stone rolled away and the body's gone and he says wow I don't know what's happening around here but this needs to be explored I want to ask you to fit yourself into this story in one of three categories. Are you a skeptic? Why should it be thought incredible that God would raise the dead? Are you a skeptic? Are you a seeker who says, you know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on this and I'm going to explore and find out from all the evidence what really happened. I'm a seeker. Or are you a convinced, committed disciple of Jesus who is demonstrating genuine courage? Not red-blooded, sword-waving, masculine courage, but quiet, patient fortitude, born of grace, motivated by gratitude, persistently, quietly, sticking up for what's right and continuing to tell the truth even when you're ridiculed and reviled by the people whom you're trying to tell. What are you? Skeptic? Seeker? Or committed disciple? Let's pray. Lord, our prayer is very simple. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to think through this passage of Scripture, learn from it, make application of it in our own lives, and ask ourselves where we really do fit in this whole Christian teaching that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Because if Christ is not risen, our faith is invalid. The church is a hoax. Preachers are liars. Christians are phonies. We're still in our sins. There's no hope beyond the grave. On the other hand, if Christ is risen from the dead... He is declared thereby to be the Son of God whose words are true, whose power is infinite, whose ultimate triumph over sin and death and hell and all the nefarious forces that we encounter will be triumphant. Lord, help us to know where we fit in this grand scenario. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.